then you need to be willing to look stupid enough to ask all the questions to get exact understanding. Right. And then you make the customer the expert on how to sell to the customer by being vulnerable and saying, well, okay, so if I wanted to get this approved, what would I do? Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Michael Brody White. Michael is an award-winning CEO, tech entrepreneur, and recovering drug addict. In 2009, Michael left a Fortune 50 company to co-found and lead Inquica, a healthcare SaaS company that allows patients to self-schedule appointments. His leadership grew the organization from two employees to 50 employees and 20,000% of revenue growth in less than six years. This exceptional growth landed in quicker a spot on the Inc. 500 list of fastest growing private companies. In 2015, Inquica was sold to a publicly traded company. In the time since Inquica went public, Michael has made a name for himself as an untraditional leadership coach. He credits his success to the tools he learned in his 12-step recovery program and now teaches others how to lead through rigorous authenticity, surrendering the outcome and doing uncomfortable work. His unique views are captured in his TEDx talk, Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do, which has been viewed more than one million times. Michael's first book, Great Leaders Like Drug Addicts, will be available for purchase on the 5th of May, 2020. This was an incredible episode, listening to Michael talk about his experience and how he fell into drugs to then becoming a world-renowned CEO. It's a truly incredible transformational story, um, and I'm so glad that I was able to sit down with Mike and chop it up. So many lessons learned. Okay, let's jump into the action. So, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me on. Awesome. So, Michael, I always ask people when they come on the show, um, how do you introduce yourself to people if you're at a business party or a networking event? How do you introduce yourself? Uh, this is a little, probably a little different. I usually introduce myself as I'm Mike and I'm an addict. Wow, just straight in like that. Yep. Okay, and then that usually leads into, I guess, the next question. No, nobody has any questions. Oh, really? They're like, oh, yeah, they're like, that's boring. It's like, okay, just like everybody else. Wow. <laughs> just like yeah. everyone else. Um, okay, we're going to get into that, the addiction thing. But before we yep. get into to that part of your, your life um, and the great work that you have been doing post that, uh, let's, let's go to the beginning. So, like, where did you grow up? I'm from California, so uh, born in uh, Los Altos Hills, near Palo Alto before Silicon Valley, back when it was um, acres of cows and gravel road, and moved to Los Angeles, went back up north 
to college and then promptly my addiction took hold of me and got kicked out of college and then I moved to Nashville, Tennessee for my recovery. Wow. Okay. And what did you what did you attempt to study at college? Uh, that's a very good way of saying it. I, it was, and I don't know how good the attempt was. It was it was an attempt for sure, but it was really everything. When you take everything past no pass, you know it's just an attempt. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was uh, organizational studies, uh, an emphasis within sociology. Okay. Um, and I think I took the first class, and I don't even recall if I passed or I didn't pass. So I've always been interested in how uh, groups work and, and the systems, but I, I didn't actually take the time to read the books and take the test to actually become an expert at it. Right. And where did that interest come from? Is it parents? Um, you know, what did your parents do? Yeah, you know, I really want to tell you it wasn't my parents. And I want to like be the differentiated human that has nothing that's paved his own path. But my mom was a sociologist, ah, uh, a social psychologist. And um, I, I, I wanted to be desperately different. And I think that's why I didn't follow through on my major. Um, but, uh, you know, my mom was a, a social psychologist, my dad was a lawyer, and um, I had some really interesting things happen to me when I was younger, and, and it just made me really interested in how people operate as a group, and um, and for, interestingly enough, the work that I currently do, and being an entrepreneur and a leader and all that kind of stuff puts me square in the middle of trying to understand all that stuff, so I guess I ended up being where I was supposed to be. Yeah, totally, totally. So it sounds as though you actually grew up in kind of like a fairly decent household yeah yeah I more mean, than more than fairly rather <laughs> yes I, I think there's a lot of people that do not have the great fortune that i had we definitely had our stuff that let it its mark and 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 created problems for me but um overall it, it wasn't there's a lot of people that have it worse but what i will say is that when, when i left my parents household i was woefully unequipped ill-equipped to deal with life on life's terms. Uh, mm. I felt like I didn't have the instructions for how to deal with life. And I didn't have the emotional intelligence and I didn't have the social intelligence. And I was really, really overwhelmed really quickly. And, and that, that's really what you know, led me to uh, my addiction. Wow. And so the addiction started at, at college. Yep. Um, at, at, at first it was, I tried to be an entrepreneur. Um, I started a, a house painting business and I was going to doing door to door sales. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I had a girlfriend that was remote and I had all these pressures that were going on and I was, I was terrible at school. And I, uh, decided that I would unwind by drinking on my own. And, uh, that was like a rule that I didn't want to cross and, and I would come home and I would, I would, I, I would buy six Jack in the box, uh, tacos and say that because they're spicy, I have to drink beer. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> and that was my rationalization. And mm. so I just started doing that every night and then pretty, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and, um, I'm addicted to alcohol and drugs. Uh, I've been kicked out of my house. Uh, my car has been repossessed. I've uh, lost my job. And I'm throwing up blood and my life is pretty much over as I know it. Um, and that was, it was about a two year, two year decline from, from the moment where I started maybe three years from when I started doing that in college, got kicked. I always like to say I left, but they kicked me out. Right. Um, and, uh, and then that's, that's where I found my bottom, but lived to tell the story. Yeah. And it's an amazing story as well. And, you know, just, you know, going back to the kind of the addiction side of things. So, it lasted about two and a half years or so or was that the duration or was that just how long it took you to get to rock bottom 
that was the really hard part. So right. it was about uh, five total years of me using. Um, and this is like drugs and alcohol. Were, yeah, like it, so it went from being, you know, loaded on Thursday, Friday, Saturday night to every single day from, you know, the moment I wake up to the moment I pass out for about two years wow. and culminating in a couple moments where um, I tried to kill myself by by using. I literally t- I was sitting there and I just kept taking another hit, taking another hit, taking another hit. And I and my goal was um, if I die from an overdose, I'll know that I was high enough um, the moment before I died. And then I felt like I got high enough and then I wanted more. And I was, I mean, I was absolutely just, I felt so powerless. I was like, I can't even, I'm not even good at being a drug addict. Um, I'm not even good at killing myself. And, and so that, that's where I started to say, you know, maybe, maybe there's another way. Um, and that's, that's, you know, my parents offered, um, to send me to treatment and, um, I laughed at them initially, but, um, the only thing keeping me from living on the street was my buddy's couch. And after a while, he, he convinced me to uh, go to treatment because he was tired of me stealing from him oh, and, and living on his couch and eating his food and drinking his beer. And I mean, he loved me, but he, he was ready for me to move on. And so I went to rehab just as a, because I didn't have any other options and I didn't want to live on the street because I had nowhere to go. Right. And I guess like in terms of like, you know, the kind of the using part, was this escapism for you? Was it just like, like you said, was life just too much? You just, you were just kind of like, just tired? Well, I, 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 so my dad is an alcoholic. Um, He doesn't drink, but he has the genes. So um, if you want to know what not to do with your kids when they are young is you don't sit them down and say, son, you have the gene that makes you an addict. So whatever you do, don't drink. <laughs> That's like a recipe don't, for, you might as well yes. just hand me the bottle now, right? Because I'm not a scientist, but if you have the genes to be an addict, that means you have the genes to do the opposite of what people tell you to do, which is why I'm an entrepreneur as well. Exactly. And, um, and, and so that made me very curious. And so for me, I remember a night when I was in my freshman year of college, feeling completely ill-equipped to deal with life and life's terms, um, completely overwhelmed. And I saw a Lifetime movie. And in the Lifetime movie, it was about a guy that was an alcoholic. And it was just, you know, his entire life sucked. And I remember, and it's just such a stupid thing now that I look back on it, but I remember thinking, I can do that well. Yeah. And it was the first thing that I was like, I was, it's kind of stupid, but I was born to do this well. Mm. And, and then when I drank and when I used drugs, I was numb and I didn't have to feel overwhelmed by life on life's terms. If I, if I wanted to ask a girl out and I was overwhelmed, if I didn't understand, understand something at school, if people were asking me to do something I didn't want to do, like whatever, all the different social and academic challenges I was facing that I didn't feel uh, equipped to deal with. When I saw that guy in that movie, And I thought about how I felt when I was drunk or high. I was like, I could be really good at this. And it's twisted thinking, but but I didn't value living at the time Mm. So to the degree that I do today. And so it was like, okay, this is a way to exist. And so that's that's how it started. And then after a while, it was, I don't know how to go through a single day not being numb. Um, It's not escapism. It's not excitement. It's literally, um, it, it felt like my medicine to emotionally deal with life. And mm. it was so overwhelming that that's, that's what I used. And it took a long process in recovery to really unpack and understand why that is. And I don't fully know all the reasons like why. I just know that 
I didn't have the instruction manual for how to deal with life and life's terms. And today I do. And the difference was I was alone and I had the genes to be an addict and I was using today. I have recovery. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I think, um, you know, people, a lot of people still feel that way. And a lot of people live that way. And I think while some people may not use drugs or alcohol, they supplement that with other things, whether that, you know, it takes a different form in everyone, I think. Um, oh, we used to tell we used to tell kids, you know, don't don't smoke marijuana because it's a gateway drug. And now um, we have children that are playing with phones, and that's the ultimate gateway drug. Exactly, they, they accomplish the same thing. They help yeah. make you numb. Yeah, exactly. And you can get buried, and you can stay there all day long, and get your fix. And as soon as you're off that phone, or you have to face reality, you don't want to. Yes. And so we're all addicted to something. Um, and that's why, you know, that's why for me, I really think it's interesting. I think everybody's an addict in some form. And I think everybody's a leader in some form. And mm. I think the two have a lot more parallels than people really realize. Yeah. And so you went, you went through this for five years and then you went through an incredible turnaround, of course, which we're going to get into. But like, Can you talk to me about the recovery process um, and, you know, what you found through that process and, and how you got to, to, I guess, come up with those three principles, which we're going to delve into? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so September 1st, 2002 was my first day without uh, a drink or a drug. And um, so it's I mean, clean ever since. Mm. And uh, I went to a, a rehab facility called Betty Ford Center out in Rancho Mirage, California. Um, I checked in. Uh, it was a very surreal experience. I didn't really think that I needed to be there. Um, and I, I started, as they started sharing the information, I started hearing other people talking. I realized that everybody around me was sharing my story. And it was a really interesting experience to hear all of the things that I had been coping with and, and struggling with. And then all the horrible things that I had been doing to hear out of like 40 other people, them all doing the exact same thing. And then to be shown a process that systematically, step by step, no pun intended, but actually intended, <laughs> um, that actually gives you the 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 instructions on how to deal with your addiction. And and the really cool thing is, is that so I so I entered a twelve step program when I got out of uh, a rehab, and I went into a halfway house, and I entered a twelve step program. And the really cool thing about the twelve step program for me um, was that it wasn't just the instructions on how to deal with my addiction. It was the instructions on how to deal with life that I had always been missing. Mm. And, and it was, uh, and it became a process that I, I just have so much love and, and gratitude for, um, um, to this day. And so the three principles you allude to is, is me talking about how I take the 12 steps. I take all my experience as a leader in, in the nonprofit sector, retail sector, corporate sector as an entrepreneur. And I integrated them and I created these three principles for anyone. You don't have to be an addict. You don't have to go to rehab. You don't have to drink until you pass out or use drugs until you pass out. It's for anyone to kind of deal with um, some of the basic things that I think we're all struggling with as, as, as humans and as professionals. Um, but it all goes back to that moment in rehab where um, one of the things they told me was you have to take off the mask. 
And mm. that mask had been keeping me alive. And that mask had been getting me what I wanted. And that was a basic fundamental retraining of my brain that was really, um, it, it, it took a lot of time and work to be able to really get into, but it's, it's really what turned things around. Yeah, that's awesome. And so after the recovery process, like you said, you were, you know, obviously the process is ongoing. Um, yes. How did you, you know, when, when did you decide, you know, I listened to your TED talk, which is phenomenal, as I said, um, Thank you. You, you decided that you were going to go into the world of work. So you hadn't worked for a long time, I'm assuming. Yes. Yes. And then when I did, <laughs> for a work, while. I was terrible at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so talk to me about, you know, kind of taking that first step into the, back into reality, into the world, into the real world and, and figuring out, okay, I'm going to actually like integrate. Yeah. One of the biggest things they tell addicts, uh, in rehab is, uh, you have to go to a halfway house to transition into, uh, the real world. And a lot of us don't take that advice and then they relapse. Um, but not everybody, but a lot. And so I was terrified. I, I wanted to stay clean. So I went to a halfway house. And when I walked in, they said that I had five business days to get a job or they were going to kick me out. What's a, what's a, so what's a halfway in house? Order to, what, what's a halfway house? Yeah. So it's a specific residential um, facility that's uh, designed to be a, a step between coming out of an institution to um, living on your own. So that it's structured. There's somebody there. There's house rules. They will drug test you. Um, and they have meetings and then they require that you go to meetings, um, and that you get sheets signed that show that you're committed to your recovery. And so it's a place where people that are newly clean or sober that are coming out of an institution of some sort, whether it's a rehab or prison, um, or mental facility, it gives them a place where they don't have to be fully on their own. Um, and they are surrounded by people that are, uh, trying to, you know, stay in recovery and do the things and they're structurally set up so that it reinforces that. Right. And so like, for me, that looked like, uh, me staying in like a 10 by 12 room with two other dudes that had just uh, gotten released from prison that when I was sleeping would talk on their speakerphone really loud with their girlfriends that they weren't supposed to have, by the way. Um, and I would just sit there like wanting to be able to fall asleep. And on the one hand, I was really annoyed that these guys were really loud and that they weren't respectful. And all that. and at the same time, I could not describe the feeling of being able to fall asleep without having a drink or a drug in my body. And it felt so great. Yeah, I can, I can, uh, I can imagine that's, that must be, it must have been a euphoric experience. It was, uh, I still look back at that time and think it was one of my happiest moments because I had an accordion file um, underneath my bed and it's where I held my bills. And it was the first time that I actually paid my bills. Mm. And so I didn't have to worry about anything getting repossessed. And I had the, the satisfaction of actually taking financial responsibility for myself um, in a le legal and legitimate way. And I think I still have that accordion, accordion file somewhere, um, but I, I have no idea where it is. I think my wife thinks I need to throw most of my stuff out. <laughs> this stuff. Wow, wow! And so you you ended up taking a a, a job in corporate America. Yep. Was that yes. that was with um, Dell, I believe. Yes, it was. Uh, I started at the, as a temporary rep for a Dell kiosk in a mall um, where literally it was during the time when they would say, dude, you're getting a Dell. And I had like really long hair and two hoop earrings and flip flops. And, and I was from California. So people loved it when I said, dude, you're getting a Dell. Um, and I was able to be really good at selling the computers. And uh, after a while, someone told me that you could actually transition into the corporate office that was here in Nashville, Tennessee. 
And uh, I, I asked if I could do that. They said no. Um, and so I, then I went over that person's head and I, went, I sent an email to someone at Dell Corporate that had recognized me for my sales. And he said, let me see what I can do. And then they, they got me into the corporate office and I was a temp rep there and I'd approve myself, but I was able to do that. And, and then I was able to actually become a full Dell employee within about a year. Wow. That was a, and then you ended up staying there for quite, quite some time from what I can see. Yeah, about, uh, it was about eight years. Um, and, uh, it was, I had about eight different roles in eight years cause it was a growth time for Dell. And so what I learned was, uh, if I could apply what I was learning in recovery to my corporate career, um, I was able to get promoted faster than the other people that I was competing with for the positions. Right. So you got, you, in your talk, you talk about getting a promotion every year. Every year for about eight years. Yeah. Wow. Um, very fortunate. And, and so my last role, uh, so most of my jobs were in sales and then sales coaching. And my last job I, I did out, I did, um, account executive sales out in the field where I had corporate customers in Ohio. Um, and then I also had a, a period of time where I was the manager of a team of 19 people with a $250 million revenue responsibility in my twenties with no college degree. And, uh, for, and I was managing all these people that had college degrees and that weren't recovering drug addicts and that were older than me. And it was, uh, it was a real test of, um, how do you, how do you learn to, um, lead yourself when you don't have all the traditional markers of leadership in, mm. in that position? And I, I was able to do that. That must've been a, did you find much resistance? I mean, did you share your story internally at work? Yes, I did. Um, so my my first sponsor said what's true anywhere is true everywhere. And he taught me to not to take my mask off, not just in recovery, but everywhere. And so um, in corporate America, when people would ask me, you know, why I wasn't drinking or whatever, I'd say I'm, I'm a recovering addict. Um, actually, that's not what I would say. Uh, initially, <laughs> I would say I was a recovering alcoholic because I thought that had less stigma. And I was scared to say that I was a drug addict too. Mm. And, and so I started just saying I'm a recovering alcoholic. And then after a while, I'd say I'm a recovering drug addict. And, um, and I wouldn't necessarily at the beginning volunteer it. But if someone asked, I would share it. And then after a while, uh, it just became, I just realized I just want to live free, man. I don't want to hide anything. And my biggest fear was that it would hold me back in my career, that someone would see me tired and see me have red eyes and think that I'd relapse and they wouldn't want to offer me a job or, mm. or a promotion. But um, I was taught that 99% of the worst things that ever happened to me happened in my head. And I put that to the test. And then the worst thing happened. A guy started a rumor, uh, a guy that I was beating in the, in the rankings, uh, he started a rumor that I had relapsed. Oh, wow. And um, I... I was so scared. I thought that was going to ruin my career. They were going to walk me out or, you know, I was never going to get a promotion. I spent a week really stressed out about it. And then after a week, I realized that nobody was talking about it. Nobody was taking him seriously and nothing bad happened. And then I got another promotion shortly thereafter. And that was a really great lesson that, you know, when I live out in the open as a vulnerable human, um, I think the greatest thing that I have to fear is fear itself. Yeah. It just didn't, just saying that I was a drug addict didn't actually hurt my, and, and I think in some ways it helped me because it helped me connect with people. They, they, if I was honest about being a drug addict, man, I wasn't going to lie about my spreadsheet. Or, yeah. yeah. 
or to, or to a customer about, you know, whether something was going to be a, a good product for what they needed. Like they, they trusted me because it's like, dude, this guy's got nothing to hide. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. And so I also think that's what helped me manage the people around me, even though I wasn't qualified is I was like, look, I know I'm not qualified, but here's what, here's what my experience says. And here's what I think we need to do. And I think it helped me. Absolutely. I mean, it definitely did because, you know, after that, that's when you, you went on to, to, to scratch that entrepreneurial itch again. Um, yes. Like, but properly. So this is the genesis of um, InQuicker. So can you, for those who don't know, can you tell everybody what InQuicker was um, sure. and, 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 and how you kind of came about with this idea? Yeah. So in 2010, when we were still reeling from our recession here in the U.S., mm. I, uh, I thought it was a great idea to take everything that I had accomplished and completely put it on the line and throw it out the window. And so I left Dell at the height of our recession um, and I ma and maxed out my credit card, drained my bank account, withdrew from my 401k and bet it all on a startup called Inquicker. And our mission was to reinvent access to healthcare um, by allowing patients in healthcare to self-schedule their appointments online rather than having to make an appointment over the phone. Mm. Um, I had read about access to healthcare needing to be increased. And what I personally experienced was the only way I could make an appointment was I'm calling Monday through Friday, nine to five when I'm at work. And yet my bank would let me do all my banking online 24 seven, 168 hours out of the week. Yeah. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And then I went to a doctor's office and I had an appointment for one o'clock and see me until three o'clock. And I realized that a Boeing 737 from Southwest Airlines could send me a text message letting me know it was running late, but my freaking doctor couldn't. <laughs> so I was like, okay, there's an opportunity here. And so uh, I found, um, I stumbled upon a software developer that had built a small piece of software that was somewhat similar to what I had imagined, but it was a side project for him. And I was like, hey, I, I, I started stalking him and I was like, I want to join forces with you because I've been looking at this problem. I, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I thought I would never would be. And, and I really want to do this, but I don't know how to build the software. And he's like, well, I, I need somebody that knows all the people-based things because I don't really know how to do that. I just know how to do software. And we joined forces. And so February 2010, we launched the next version of, a company, of the company in Quicker. And we bet everything on it. And basically, we had six months to either triple our revenue from what he had been slowly having, or we were going to be completely financially out of money and have to go back to our regular jobs. And so like, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a lot. So how did, how did it start? How did it start? Yeah. Well, so he had in, so in 2006, his dad was the CEO of a hospital and he had been talking about patients having to wait in the emergency room and getting sicker, but if they had low acuity conditions, they didn't actually need to be there. And he right. said he wished that there was a way that they could wait virtually. So his son, the software developer, said, I want to solve that problem. And he built a piece of software, right. um, the first version of Inquicker, deployed it there. And he, was, he had a full-time job being a developer at a company. And he got two more hospitals, but just kind of stuck there. And, and he didn't really know how to grow it. Um, and, and I came across it. And I was like, and I'd been building this whole business plan for the doctor's office. And he was exclusively just, he had three hospital emergency rooms. He was letting people wait virtually for their appointment. Yeah. And I was like, man, we can take this technology and apply it to every single aspect of healthcare so that no matter what you need, whether long-term, whether it's a, a lab, physical therapy, a specialist, mammogram, you name it, 
you should be able to schedule it in 30 seconds from your phone without having to call anybody. Mm. And, and so, you know, at the beginning, he was a little skeptical about all of that, but he saw the vision. And, and I, I always, I always said that, um, I was either going to get a restraining order or he, or he was going to make me his partner. <laughs> happen. Um, but, uh, we became partners and we launched version of in quicker when I left Dell. Um, and basically the reason I left Dell was because I spent six months, um, spending nights and weekends working on in quicker and right. I would send, um, emails to executives and just cold and I was getting an incredible response rate. And one day, um, I was working for Dell and I had gotten more calls from CEOs of hospitals than I had gotten from CIOs at my customers for Dell. Wow. And I, and I was like, dude. I love the business plan of my career at Dell, but like this thing is real now and yeah. I need to go do something about it. And that's when I really looked hard at, am I going to actually make this leap? And I was terrified to do so. But that, that was the moment that I was like, I need to make this leap. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, you, you know, you raise a really valid point there in terms of like, if you do have a B2B or SaaS business, you still should transition out of your full-time role into meetings. Right. Like you had the demand there, you were doing the outreach, you had everything set up. And then it wasn't until, like you said, you had more calls than you were getting at work that you decided to kind of jump ship. Like, I think that's a, yeah, that's we, a valid lesson there. And we were really, um, you could call it either fortunate or stupid and not fortunate, but we were, um, we were in a position where we weren't raising money and, right. and we were bootstrapped. And so the price that we paid was I had to, I paid it with my sleep and my gray hairs and my beard today and all that kind of stuff <laughs> working the nights and weekends to yeah. validate that there was demand and really get it up and running. So that way, by the time that I left and I started maxing out that credit card, I'd already gone halfway through the validation process and, and, yeah. and getting customers and, and, and starting to understand the sales cycle and all that kind of stuff. So that way I was able to, um, triple the revenue within six months without having to raise any money from anybody. Yeah, that's crazy. Because I was going to say, this was a completely bootstrapped operation. It, we, we never raised um, a dollar of outside money the entire time. Wow. That's fascinating. And just in It doesn't terms of, mean that we didn't act like a venture capitalist. It's just like <laughs> cash flow to invest. Yeah, no, totally. And like, so you guys are getting these meetings. You sign up your first hospital. How did the first deal come about? Um, so I went out on the road and I started pitching this to hospitals. And so like... Uh, out of every 10 hospitals, eight would just like laugh me out of the room. Um, and then two would say, Oh my God, you're going to change healthcare. Right. And so those two were the ones that kept me going. Um, but I still had to figure out how to actually get them to buy. And I started to develop a process that really helped our sales engine the entire time we were there. And I didn't necessarily formally teach it exactly the way that I would say it here, but I started to use um, what I call the three E's of mask-free selling. And basically, it's using empathy, exact understanding, and making the customer an expert as a way to really master the sales cycle in an industry that you don't know. Because I did not know anything about healthcare. And so, as an example, the exact understanding part. Um, one of my first sales calls, someone said, well... Does your software violate this federal law law called EMTALA? And I didn't know what EMTALA was. 
And so I had an option right there where I could pretend. I was like, oh, no, it's fine or anything like that. Mm. Or I could say, I'm sorry. I don't know what Mtala is. Could you explain it to me? I went with achieving exact understanding. And I said, I don't know what this is. And so they explained it to me. And I would love to tell you that they bought. They did not. <laughs> but on the next call, I was far more educated than I would have been and if I had pretended that I understood what it was. Right. Because instead of just researching online, I got to hear specifically their concern, which helped me really think about how was I going to preempt that question and disarm it. And, and, and identify that objection in the sales process and answer it really succinctly and really effectively. And, and that's like a process that we used. Use empathy to really understand what the human inside the professional is trying to achieve. People always talk about tying to our organizational initiatives and, and all that kind of stuff. And they, you know, you, you can always tell an MBA because they'll say, yes, I'll try to find out what their organizational objective is and tie my solution to that. And that sounds great in a classroom. But the truth is, is that in organizations, the people have political motives yeah. and they, they make decisions on their own for their own reasons. And so you have to have empathy to understand what the human inside the professional thinks. Then you need to be willing to look stupid enough to ask all the questions to get exact understanding. Right. And then you make the customer the expert on how to sell to the customer by being vulnerable and saying, well, okay, so if I wanted to get this approved, what would I do? Or if I wanted to be able to talk to your boss, like, what would you tell me to do? Mm. Instead of trying to pretend that you know all the things, right? And, right. and all of this stuff, I didn't learn at Dell. I learned in the rooms of a 12-step program. Wow. I just applied it to the motions that I learned at Dell and they were merged together and they became the three E's for how you do mass free sales. And that really, it allowed me to ramp really fast as an entrepreneur that was selling to hospitals who had never worked in healthcare and never sold to hospitals. Yeah, because typically kind of like the sell cycle for hospitals and, you know, healthcare in general is quite, it's quite a long sell cycle, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, so at the beginning, it seemed like it was um, just how like one to five years seemed like the sales cycle. But what I found was, as I started to really practice these three E's more, I started to understand uh, a lot better what the variables were that contributed to a longer sales cycle. Mm. And I was able to isolate the ones that I would encounter over and over again, and then figure out. And so uh, an example, I, I, I'm like, okay, so you know, I'm noticing that everybody, we're getting lost in legal. So like, what, why is, why is legal a, a, a 60 to 90 day process? Mm. And, and, and why are we not getting a good result? And instead of sitting in my lab, trying to figure out the answer or talking to other salespeople, I would ask the customers, like just that straight up. I'd be like, what could I do to make this better? Like, I, I'm frustrated. This sucks. Like what? And, and, and by being a real human, as opposed to, um, hey, uh, I'll call your boss if this isn't through legal or like some other kind of crap. They would be like, oh, you know what would be really helpful is if another hospital's general counsel that you currently have under contract would um, would call us and tell us why they were comfortable with it. Oh, okay. So now all of a sudden in the sales cycle, I'm offering that as something that can happen because I use the expertise of my customer of how to sell to my customer as opposed to trying to come up with my own expertise. And it was able, I was able to get the sales cycle down to six months on average, depending on the size of the customer um, as a result. But it started off with, I had no idea how, and the first 20 people I called didn't close. But by using that process, uh, we eventually started closing customers. And um, the first big deal that, um, that closed while I was there, the first two deals that closed while I was there were really important for two different reasons. One was Loma Linda University, which was um, a teaching hospital tier, like tier one trauma, level one trauma center in California that was really well respected. 
and their chief medical, their chief medical um, officer, or their, sorry, their chair of emergency medicine became our chief medical officer, actually. Wow. And then um, selling to a, a hospital in Oklahoma that spent $400,000 advertising our software to their entire city. What? And those two moments became validators for what we were doing in a way that um, a Super Bowl ad might not have achieved for us. Yeah. And like with, with the, the software, is the cost onto the customer or onto the business? Uh, what do you mean by that? So, you know, from my understanding of like the booking platform, is this something that I guess the end user would be oh, the oh, patient oh, that's yes, booking, yes. right? So is the, who's yes. paying for the software? Is it the is it the healthcare professional or is it a double sided marketplace? Like how how does it work? No, so it was it was um we were we were white labeled B to B to C. Um right. and so what we so what it was was the hospital would pay a subscription fee and then we would empower them to put our stuff into all of their digital assets and it would be branded to them. And then the patients would use it and it would be free. Interestingly enough, when I got there, my partner had an inverse revenue model where we charged the patient a convenience fee. Mm. Um, but I personally had a lot of reasons that aren't necessarily interesting to go into here why I thought that was wrong and, and not the right way, both wrong, at not ethically or morally, but just philosophically. And then why I thought that made us really vulnerable from a business perspective. And the whole goal was to increase access to healthcare. And I felt like putting that bump there didn't make sense. Yeah, of course. And so using the three E's, I identified why hospitals wanted our software. And so I just shift the revenue responsibility over to the providers. Made sense. And then they had something of value to offer to the, the consumer. Yeah. That's pretty simple. Yeah, no, very, very simple. And so you guys grew from like from two employees to fifty employees. Was it twenty thousand percent growth year on year? Twenty thousand percent growth over five years. Over five years, um, which for a bootstrapped healthcare company is insane. Doing something that's never been done before was insane. It's extremely insane. Like you know, it sounds as though there was a really slick road and it was very straightforward along the way. But like, can you think, <laughs> and I know that there's never the case. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of like any, like any specific challenges or anything that happened where you thought, I mean, there must've been so many times when you thought, okay, this is going to be the, the end. Like, all right, it was a good run, but you know, this is definitely going to be the end of the company. Can you think back to a time when, where you thought it was going to be the end? And what happened? Uh, dude, the time that I always think of is the one that's in my TED Talk, and it's the one that I expand on in my book. Um, and yeah. It's when we had a, a handful of customers, but one customer was like 50 to 70% of our revenue. And we had just had a call. We were running out of cash, and they said that they were going to expand from one hospital to 50 nationwide. And we were going to go from thousands in revenue to millions overnight. We were going to have national exposure. We were going to have a top five health system in the U.S. behind us. And it was like an intoxicating, uh, as a recovering addict, I use no substances. But it was an intoxicating <laughs> moment. And it was so, it was what you imagine in the movies. And then the next day, we found out that our software had failed at that customer. And it had impacted a patient. And our contracts um, legally obligated us to notifying them within 24 hours. And we knew that if we let them know that our software had failed and impacted a patient, that being such a young company, doing something that had never been done before, um, that they were going to pull the plug on the whole thing. And not only would we lose their hospital, but other people would find out and the whole thing would be over mm. and we'd be financially bankrupt and the company would be dead. And, and the big quandary that we had was, do we tell them? 
that was like probably the biggest moment at the earliest stage. Wow. And you did tell them. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Uh, so one of my team said, don't because the hot, the customer didn't know the patient didn't know it didn't, it didn't hurt them in a bad way. And so we were like, let's just keep building and, and going. And, um, and for me, I'd never been the CEO of a startup before, but I've been a recovering addict for about, uh, eight years at the time. And the three principles that I teach practice, rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. Um, they were the principles that I used to guide me in that decision. And I called them. And when I called them, they just started laughing at me because I couldn't believe that I had, I had told them about one patient being impacted because every time they got a call like that, it was 20,000 patients. And instead of hurting the company, it ended up making us wildly successful at that customer because there was a level of trust that they didn't have with their other vendors. Yeah. And I think that's such an incredible story. I mean, like I said, the first time I heard that in your TED talk, I was just like, wow. I mean, you know, I think in startup culture, we're very much told to, you know, fake it till you make it <laughs> and yes. smoke and mirrors um, and, you know, do whatever it takes to get the deal done and to close. So you almost went against the grain in that in that sense, right? Because you, you were completely honest, which <laughs> in the startup world is actually quite hard to come across. <laughs> um, uh, it is. It's, it's very, it's very difficult. Um, I, uh, there's a nonprofit in Nashville called the Nashville Entrepreneur Center that um, yeah. helped me at this period of time. And, um, I became a mentor there. And then actually after I sold in quicker, I became the CEO of that nonprofit for a period of time and for three years. And, and one of the things when I was a mentor there that I would tell the entrepreneurs, I would say, look, I know that you, you have to put on a smile and pretend that you're confident and that you have everything figured out, yep. but I know you don't. Um, and I want to be the guy that you can come to and tell me what's really going on. Because if you can't drop that mask, you're not going to be able to actually impact what you don't know and what's going to hurt you. And if you spend the whole time walking around with a painted mask on your face, you're not going to actually be successful because at, at the end of the line, people are able to sniff this out. Human beings are wired to detect deceit yeah. because it's a survival mechanism. And so whether it's an investor, a customer, or a potential employee, you have to learn how to actually be real while owning your confidence. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes in startup culture today is that we teach, we know we teach people to go raise money and do pitch competitions and do all this stuff and pretend that they have it all figured out. But the truth is, is that the jig is up. People, investors and customers understand that startup culture fronts and pretends that they have this stuff figured out. Yeah. And so what they're looking for, because they're humans too, who have jobs, they're looking for, can I trust you? And the best way to earn trust is to own your story, own where you're at, own your strengths and own your weaknesses in that moment. And you're actually able to build a level of connection that transcends work and transcends professional. It's, it's human. And then that person's going to want to work with you on how to solve for your challenges. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. And I think it's something that a lot of startups, and I don't know if, it, if it's going to change. It definitely needs to change because it's very detrimental to their personal health and to the company health and their employees. Um, and we see that every week with a different startup kind of like, you know, was once praised as a unicorn is now in the ground just because they were not honest from the get go. Um, and yeah. I think, and I think, but I also think the reason why you had, you were at liberty to do that was because of the fact that you bootstrapped, right? Like you didn't have to answer to a board or investors. Um, uh, actually I would, I would challenge that because at the time the person I was talking to was 70% of my revenue. So they were my primary. True, investor. true. The customer's always right. Right. I mean, the, yeah. cust the customer was your, your VC ultimately. 
Um, yeah, I, th I, th I think an investor would have been more understanding of us having a software failure than the customer would have been. Although at the same time, we did have freedoms. I'm not, I, we did have freedoms as a bootstrapping company, but it meant that it meant that instead of being able to um, distribute our own personal risk amongst customers and investors, it was hundred percent concentrated in our customers. Yeah. And so that meant that we had to be as honest and as authentic as possible in our relationships with them. And then also for me, that was really important. I didn't want to build another work culture where everybody was wearing a mask. And so I wanted to build a mask free culture and I built that really intentionally. Um, and it, trans it, it transferred into our customer relationships. And the truth was, is that we were not the most educated. We were not the best funded. We didn't have any patents. There were so many things working against us. And I really think that it, that, that moment um, with, with that large health system, that wasn't just about building a relationship with that customer. That was a story I told every single employee. And I told them that that's what we do around here. Mm. And, and our customers will always be able to rely on us saying, no, we don't know how to do that. We've never done that. This isn't good for you. And, and all the stuff that you're scared to say to a customer, um, because that's what I was taught in, in the rooms of, of recovery. And that's what, what I learned in my corporate career that actually makes you more successful is when you're willing to be real in all the moments that other people aren't. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's, I think that's, that's vital. And I think, yeah, that's a, that applies to business, relationships, friendships, family. I mean, you can use that in every walk of life. Absolutely. Um, and and I, I would always say inside of every professional is a person. So, you know, you're, no matter what, what the segment in your life is, that humanity is a way that you connect and people don't connect in their strength. They, they respect strength. Mm. But the people that we love and trust the most are the people that have walked through the full spectrum of life, showing us their insecurities and fears. It's a best friend. It's a family member. It's a significant other. It's not your boss. Yeah. Like, what if you could take that level of trust and that level of sincerity that you have in those personal relationships and bring that as a competitive advantage in your work and the way that you interact with your employees and your customers or your investors and partners? And what if that was what you were known for? Then you can be yourself everywhere. And then you can create an environment that is just like the one that you have with your family at home, but you have it work. One of the things I would always say it in quicker is, in a job interview, you know, they always go, they'd be like, oh, oh I've interviewed with all these uh, companies that say that their, their work culture is like, is a family. And I would just look in the eye and be like, this is not a family. That's a bold <laughs> lie. Yeah. I'm not blood related to you. You have a family. I have a family. And when we come to work, I want to respect that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be real with you. And I'm going to tell you that I'm going to have your best interests at heart, but I'm not going to pretend that I'm your family. Ironically, that created a family atmosphere where even five years after we sold the company and most of us don't work there, we still have alumni get togethers and reunions. Like who has a reunion? Wow. People that worked at a company. And it was because we own the fact that we weren't family is what helped us feel like family because it allowed everybody to drop the mask. Yeah. Is not that... that I'm passionate about it or not. <laughs> no, not, not at all. Not at all. Um, no, that's, that's incredible. And, you know, in terms of like the, we're going to talk about a bit more about the authentic leadership and, and, and break that down in those, those three steps. I know you talked to them earlier, but just going back to in quicker, when did, like, how did the conversation about the acquisition come about? Um, and, and how did you guys decide to, to do that? Did you not think that, you know, this puts us in a good position to maybe go out and raise, you know, 10, 20 million dollars in this where we are right now and then take this from 50 people to 500 people? Was that ever a, a, a conversation that you had? 
so we talked about raising money um, throughout the life cycle of the company. We weren't um, 100% against it. We just really believed in, in um, the lean startup methodology right. and, and remaining agile. And we thought that, especially in healthcare, um, we didn't think capital provides the level of acceleration that most people are accustomed to in um, markets with less friction. And so we thought that the agility actually would give us a better competitive advantage. And being a first mover, it gave us the ability to respond to things that we may not be able to see coming around the corner rather than building a lot of mass into our model and then not being able to adjust. So we were always looking at raising money, but that equation of agility versus ability to accelerate was what we were always trying to balance. And we were just really fortunate that we were able to sign up most of the biggest health systems in the U.S. and we were and we we had tremendous success. And so we just never needed the capital in a in a way where you're like, oh man, I really need this. Cash flow was able to fund our growth. Um, at the same time, as we grew the company, um, and I'm not going to go into all of it just because it's a long story. It's in my book. It's called A Tale of Two Divorces. In 2014. I divorced my wife and my business partner and had to sell my company all in the same year. Wow. And, and what ended up happening for us was in order to resolve some disagreements between me and my partner, um, the company ended up being uh, put up for a recapitalization, which led to an exit. Um, wow. We did look at growth equity, um, a, a raising growth round as part of that recap. But what ended up happening was the strategic made more sense for us at the time. Mm -hmm. um, part of for me in evaluating our potential uh, suitors, I, I wanted whoever was going to maintain our culture and our product the best and whoever was going to give our people the best opportunity to thrive. And so we chose a, a company that that had made a lot of acquisitions, but not meant, they had only made one other SaaS acquisition and we mm. knew that we would be a differentiated business unit within that larger company and 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 so we chose that one because we thought it would be the best thing for the customers um for the for the employees and for the product uh, but uh, you know no one wants to hear an entrepreneur complain about an exit but i yeah. didn't ever want to sell the company um and i don't and i don't take it lightly that i'm that i'm but i didn't ever want to sell the company i wasn't building it to sell it um, mm. that's one of the reasons that we were bootstrapped um, but we ended up uh, going through a process to resolve uh, uh, differences. And my partner basically wanted out. And he had a large percentage of the equity, which led us to a recap. And, and that's what led us to our exit, which is still a good story. And it still was good for everybody. But it, it, wasn't, it was very bittersweet for me. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. And I guess the idea of you potentially like just raising money for yourself to buy him out was, was not an option? or um, I, So I actually looked at that. And, um, for me, the, the, how do I say this in a way that doesn't sound like a brag? The valuations were so attractive that it made it really hard for me to do that in a way where I thought that I was going to have the same level of control right. that I had as we were bootstrapped. Right. Um, and because of that dynamic, I knew that either way I'd be working for someone rather than running my own company because, um, my partner had the majority of the equity and I had the minority stake. Mm-hmm. And, and so I realized that um, I, didn't, I didn't really want to work for anybody. And that wasn't the primary motivator, but that, that's what led me to realizing that if I were to raise the money, I would still be, be I would just be choosing my investor. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be the investor. Got it. Makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. Okay. So unless I had a really cool like baseball card that like had a lot of money, but as a drug addict, I can assure you that I'd already sold all of those things for drugs. So I didn't have that. Wow. Awesome. 
So I want to switch gears now and talk a bit more about kind of like leadership. Um, so, you know, post-exit, you went on to do a bunch of different things. You've done some talks. You you took over the Entrepreneurship Center that you mentioned. Um, but authentic leadership, um, you know, you mentioned it earlier, kind of like the three steps, like be your authentic self, uh, surrender the outcome, um, and do uncomfortable work. Do you want to kind of like talk us through each one of those steps and what they mean and how they look in a practical sense? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first principle is practice rigorous authenticity. And so the thing is, is that there's a lot of people that talk about authenticity, what authenticity is, why authenticity is important. Um, but not like we've done a tremendous amount of research and we've assessed leaders from CEOs to frontline employee to entrepreneur. And I've worked with um, large companies like Google and Dell and startups and nonprofits. And 90% of leaders report wearing a mask at work um, and not showing their true self because I think it's going to make them more successful. And so how do you resolve that conflict where you have all this talk about authentic leadership, but nobody's actually doing it? And the problem is, is that there isn't the actual how. Nobody has given anybody a step-by-step -step systematic process for this is actually how you overcome the urge to wear a mask as a leader. Um, and because for drug addicts, we, they don't just tell you don't use drugs. Like that would be, that would not solve the problem. They give you a step-by-step -step process to do it. So pr practicing rigorous authenticity is acknowledging that authenticity is the goal, but rigorous is very different. Rigorous means doing it in every situation and work in life, no matter the consequences, just like I've already shared here. Most people put the mask on when the boss is in the room or the job is on the line or the customer's on the line or the, the relationship is on the line and, and, and learning to be your true self, no matter what is the goal, the first principle. But the reason that there are, there are two others is that's the goal. The next two principles are the actual how. So the second principle is surrender the outcome. And that is literally the opposite of what we are taught to do as leaders. We are responsible for outcomes. We're taught to control them. But what we do is we waste a tremendous amount of energy focusing on things that we can't control at the expense of the things that we can. So if you can actually learn to surrender the outcome, you reclaim more energy and it, it becomes a competitive advantage versus the other people that you're competing against. Mm. You can exclusively focus only on the things that you can't control instead of focusing on the things that you can't. Like how many of us have stared at a spreadsheet and kept hitting refresh and hoping the numbers were different <laughs> or like trying, hoping an employee would act differently instead of actually like performance managing them. Yeah. There's a lot of things that we do that waste a tremendous amount of time. We don't begrudge um, athletes for squeezing out 3% efficiency, but we spend a lot of time creating reports and, and sending emails that focus on things that we can't control instead of the things that we can. Mm. So that's what reclaims energy. And then once you've reclaimed your energy, you can do uncomfortable work. And that's what recovering addicts learn. And leaders are taught how to do hard work and they're taught how to do smart work. That's intellectual and physical, but uncomfortable work is emotional. It's all that stuff that you avoid, like a pit in the middle of your stomach when you have to have a difficult conversation yeah. that leads to people doing eight hours of hard work just because they were avoiding five minutes of uncomfortable work. I, I remember spending an entire weekend trying to figure out how the heck a pivot table works in Microsoft Excel. And I spent 20 hours and that was hard work. Because I didn't want to spend the five minutes of uncomfortable work admitting to my boss that I didn't know how to make a pivot table. Wow. And so there's so much that we leave on the table as far as leaders by not practicing these principles. But we, are, we grow up in a leadership model that is broken that tells us to do the opposite of these three principles. Right. 
Why do, why, and why do you, why do you think that is? Uh, so I'm glad you asked that. So I've written a book <laughs> called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. It comes yeah. out May 5th. And I'm, I'm just going to sell it right now. So you can go to michaelbrodyweight.com, B-R-O-D-Y, um, W-A-I-T-E, michaelbrodyweight.com to pre-order it. By, it comes out May 5th. And so in uh, chapter three, um, I have a chapter called, so the first chapter is, uh, hi, I'm Mike, I'm an addict. And the next chapter is, you're blank and you're a mask addict. And so the third chapter is the addict's advantage. And what I talk about is that our leadership model today is based off of command and control leadership. Yeah. And command and control leadership made sense when we were at war and when we had a manufacturing economy where you had centralized decision making and you didn't want people doubting your orders because they couldn't actually solve the entire problem. And and, and you just want people to punch the ticket, execute the orders. But now we're in a services economy where we're actually trying to push decision making as close to the customer as possible. And instead of just making goods, we're actually trying to solve human problems. And so in a services economy, connection with other humans is 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 vital. And, and you don't get connection that you get in the military in corporate America when someone respects your power. You get connection when you act like a freaking human. And so people are missing that. And then parallel to this, in a, being moving into a services economy where human connection is so important, our entire world in the last 25 years has completely become disconnected. As we become technical, uh, uh, digitally connected globally, human connections at an all-time low. So as human connection goes down and services economy makes human connection more important, suddenly those that can truly connect with other humans have a competitive advantage and if you look at the younger generations, they don't trust anybody. Like our politicians are elected to represent us, but none of them can answer a question with, I don't know. Mm. And so nobody's admitting that they aren't human. I mean, that they, that they are human. Everybody's pretending that, that they're stronger than they are. And that comes out of command and control leadership. And it worked for centuries and it made sense. But in a world where we have a services economy and we don't have connection, Everything has completely changed and just the leadership dynamic of people that grew up in that era don't understand it. And then we inherit, we come in, you know, the younger people come into the world and we see what the, the, those at the top are doing. They set the terms of engagement and we go, oh, we gotta, we gotta do what they do. And so I'm trying to start the mass free movement. I am starting the mass free movement and it's not going to start with the CEOs of established companies. It's going to start with the entrepreneurs and people that are the next generation of leaders recognizing that they can actually differentiate themselves against their peers by doing the opposite of what they, what their people above them have taught them. Wow, that sounds that's fascinating and it's it's an amazing movement and I think it's one that's very 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 necessary. Um you know, I can't wait to read the book. Again, great leaders live like drug addicts. I think it's going to be an incredible book. Um Thanks, man. Yeah, no, I can't I can't wait to to read it. I'm definitely probably going to do the audio version though. <laughs> Yeah, you know what, and 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 I I read it. So if you don't hate my voice right now, um, then it'll be decent. Um, and then if you go to my website, you can download a sample of the audiobook as well. Awesome. Look, Michael, I want to I want to work towards wrapping up now and and ask a few rapid fire questions, which I ask all guests that come on the show. Um. So awesome. so what has or who has been your biggest inspiration? Biggest inspiration would have to be Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wow. That's incredible. And why? Because he built something 80 years ago 
if you were an addict or a loved one of an addict, you had no hope. And your only option was a jail, um, a mental institution, a hospital or death. And mm. he found a way to stop drinking. And uh, he not he didn't just try to help people, but then he codified it the way we want entrepreneurs to scale something. Yeah, he scaled that solution. And then other fellowships were created. Now millions of addicts all around the world have hope and have recovery thanks to what he did. But the most powerful thing about what he did was the way he did it. Every step of the world over time, he, he wanted it to be a self-sustaining thing and not a cult of personality. And today we have so many self-improvement gurus or motivational talkers or, or, or authors that'll tell you I can fix your problem. They want you to become totally invested in them. Instead of saying, here's a process that works and I want you to be able to help others with it and not be dependent on me to do it. And the way that he built that is something that I think is it's something that has global impact today in a way that he never probably dreamed. But I don't think he even un understood um, the impact it's going to have in the next 20 or 30 years as addiction becomes even more of a problem. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's amazing. And Sorry, I know you said rapid fires. So <laughs> no, it's fine. I asked the leading question. You know why? You know. Um, okay, favorite podcast. Uh, you know what? So this is a cop out. So right now it's um, it's it's Joe Rogan. Not because I actually listen. It's because I want to build my own podcast. And every time I talk to people and say, "What should I do?" They say, "Joe, go listen to Joe Rogan's podcast." No, but I don't think that's <laughs> fair because it's like there's not much you can take from that, right? Like <laughs> he just like bros out. You know, he just like has a he's sit down. Joe he's just, yeah. I'm not Joe Rogan. I mean, it's Joe Rogan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's Joe Rogan. And like, I don't, I think you can watch Joe Rogan. And I mean, he's an incredible interviewer, but he literally is just a super well read guy who likes to have a joint and speak to interesting people. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so for me, it's interesting where I'm like trying to create a movement where I'm telling people to be themselves, but everybody's telling me to be like this other podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> So, but I'm, 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 I'm studying him. I also really like Dax Shepard. Um, he's open about being in recovery too. So I have a, a, a personal affinity for him and what he's doing yeah. in general, but um, those are probably the two. Okay. Uh, favorite blog, if you have one. You know what? I don't have a favorite blog. Um, if I did, it would be Brene Brown's. Um, I just don't read it. But Renee Brown is a hero of mine, yeah. and um, I guarantee you, whatever is on her blog is gold. Okay, favorite book? Uh, Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown, uh, and the sequel, which she didn't position as Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. The reason that I cheat there is I see it all as one really big book that gave me the freedom to be myself as a leader and really inspired the entire movement that I'm doing right now. Awesome. So, what was the name of the book again? Taken. Uh, Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown Gifts and then Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Yes, I've heard of Daring Greatly. That's a, I think I'm going to add that to my list. Uh, favorite Instagram account, if you have one. Oh, man. See, again, another cop-out that I don't like. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out how to modernize my social media. So unfortunately, that means I have to listen and watch a lot of Gary Vee. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of Gary Vee. He's cool. No, the problem is, is that there's a lot of Gary Vee. And there yeah. is a problem with that. There is a problem with that. But, that is true. Um, so, But also, there's another one, uh, Taking Care of Babies. Oh, and a lot of people don't know about this one, but um, it's a woman uh, named Kara that created a system not different than what I'm doing for, for authentic leadership. She created a system for, for how to really help uh, babies sleep. And she has an online course. 
course and she and her Instagram account has a lot of really helpful stuff. And she single-handedly saved my wife and my life from being <laughs> a little dramatic when we had our daughter last year because we she would not sleep and we took her online course and uh and then all of a sudden our daughter was sleeping wow. and her Instagram account is really and she's really helpful and she's and it's good taking care of babies. She still helps us today. Taking Kara Baby, C A R A. It's wow. a it's a really great brand name because her name is Kara. Yeah, no, that's it's, 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 that's amazing. I just looked at the page. I mean, I don't have a baby, but uh, you know. But one, if you do, you're going to be grateful that I. Yeah, I will, I will be. I will be. Maybe I'll give it to my sister. She just had a baby. Um, Dude, I'm telling you, it's life changing. I'm going to drink the Kool Aid. Um, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Hmm. Um. Uh, I think you stumped me on that one. I right now I'm building the entire platform to support the movement that my book is designed to um, spark and support. I am really looking forward to the time where people are using my system that's in the book and experiencing a change that someone else that was reading the book was able to teach them rather than me teaching them. And mm. so I would, I'm really looking forward to the time where my primary job is to tell the stories of the amazing people that are living and leading mass free rather than currently right now doing the coaching myself, doing the public speaking, my, doing the workshops and, and doing all the engagement. I have a team. I'm not by myself. We're all doing it together, but I can't wait until the movement is um, loving itself and I'm just the person that's carrying the stories. Right. Wow. That's, that's, that's amazing. Um, What's the advice that you would give to your 21-year-old self? I always get emotional when I think of this one. Um, I know that you think that you're in the darkest world ever and that, that there's no hope, but I promise you if you can just hang on, you're going to have a life that you never dreamed of. Wow. That might be the best answer I've ever had on the show. Um, oh, thank you. Seriously. Um, if you had $100 in your favorite city, what would you spend it on? Oh man. Um, uh, my wife loves food. Um, she's a foodie cause she doesn't let herself eat food. So then she obsesses over what she can eat. So when we travel, it's an, it's an excuse for her to do stuff. So, no. um, we would probably, we would probably use a hundred dollars to go eat at interesting places that are not upscale and, uh, that don't require a suit and tie. Um, like just like real quick, uh, we did the save by the, I don't know if you remember the show Save by the bell. I don't know how big. It yeah, was. yeah. 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 I remember that Zach and all, all right. those guys. Yeah. So in, um, the, they would go to a restaurant in the show called the max, I think. And so in Chicago, they had a, they had a pop-up a restaurant that was a complete recreation of the max and they actually served you food and it was like 20 bucks or whatever. But like going there was like one of our most favorite experiences. Wow. So we would do something like that. Yeah. Something interesting like that. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Um, what's the one thing that startups should ignore in the early days? Your ego. Oh, leave the ego at the door. Yes. Is that your dog? It's going gonna, it's gonna, <laughs> to tell you that you need to survive um, and you need to do the opposite of what it tells you to in order to survive. Mm, that's good. And I guess ultimately, you know, I usually ask the final question to, you know, founders that are currently still in 
founder mode of their companies, like what the vision is. But I guess in this instance, you know, what's your vision for your, I guess at this point for your life, right? I mean, you know, we have the mask free movement happening now. I guess what's your vision for that? And what's the vision for the book? Yeah, and, and I do feel like I'm in founder mode again. Um, it's just a different type of business. Uh, so the vision, my goal is to teach the world how to live and lead mask free. And I want to make it so that every child that grows up in this world never knows what it means to wear a mask. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to teach leaders how they can take their masks off to gain a, an explicit competitive advantage so that they actually do it because it makes business sense. And then when they do that, the rest of the world can take their masks off and then we can all be our authentic selves. And the way that I'm going to do that is uh, the book is coming out. The TED Talk went viral. We got over a million views in all these different countries. And so we have all these people that are engaging us. And so I'm just going to love every single person that wants to live and lead mask free by supporting the book um, and building the uh, specific tools to support people in their journey to live and lead mask free. And there's actually a website that's in the book that points to a set of tools that I've built so that people can spend the rest of their lives just like an addict uh, spends time in a 12-step program, they can spend time in this program um, resisting the mask in their profession. And, and the goal is to have a million leaders in the next 10 years that are living and leading mask-free because if we can have a million, the rest of the world will follow. Wow, that's incredible. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. Um, if people want to find you and get in contact, where can they, where can they get in contact with you? Yeah. So the two places I'm putting, uh, so social media is one of the most masks, uh, is a place full of masks so I'm yeah. putting out mask free content, um, all the time on social media. And then, uh, go to michaelbrodyweight.com, B R O D Y W A I T E.com. And you can learn more about my story, these three principles and the book and how you can connect with other people that want to live and lead mask free. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It was great. Just want to say another huge thank you to Michael for coming on the show and being so open and transparent with me. It was truly an incredible episode and I think I had goosebumps the whole way through. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.